this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to That's do. That's right. We have apparently had some better things to do. Yes, we have. Recently. Although this one won't, won't be the be late the, one. Right. The late one is the one I'm just finishing editing. But we no, we hope up. you forgive us. We're we'll going to try to get several um, weeks yeah. by the time this goes up. I had some things to update, but I haven't had time. So when I do, I'll... You should have just pretended you had nothing to update. Then. Yeah, but then what's worse, making it sound like I'm not paying attention or... Yeah, that's true. Okay. So you're... Um, yes. You've got a couple things today. Well, before we... Yes, this is kind of a mini one. Mm-hmm. We have a story going on here in our neighborhood kind of, in the southern Maine, that has made international news. Do you realize it has made international yeah. news? It started when news broke that there had been a man hit by a car at a Little League game in Sanford. And for those of you who are not from the United States, Little League is little kids playing They have it all baseball. over the world. Okay, never mind them. Carol Sharrow, age 51, drove onto the Little League field a little after 7 p.m. and started driving her car clockwise around the bases. Every story had to mention it was clockwise. Because she was going in the wrong direction. (laughs) No, that is the right direction. No. Oh, it is. She was going in the wrong direction. Carol! I shouldn't laugh because... It's not funny. Because of what happened. Because there were little kids... Well, also, there were little kids on the field when she did that. And the the kids watching were terrorized. People were screaming. There was a short video that someone took with their camera. And people were scared because she was, like, speeding around the bases. And she also, when she was driving in, there was, like, gates, I guess to keep vehicles off the field. <laughs> but I think sometimes vehicles have to go on the... Yeah, to mow the lawn, to mow the lawn. 68-year-old Douglas Parkhurst was trying to close the gate, and he his witnesses said he pushed some kids, like three kids, out of the way. Out he of was way. trying to close the gate to keep her from getting yes. on the field? Yes. Okay. Either that or he was closing. I think what he was doing was some vehicle had just um, left through the gate and he was closing it after the vehicle had left oh. and she came speeding through and she hit him and killed him oh. but some witnesses said he pushed some little kids out of the way and saved them carol sherrow is a three-time drunk driver well she's probably a million offender. time drunk driver <laughs> she's been charged she's been charged i think three times maybe two they haven't said whether she was drunk on this night she has mental issues she had something going on that's not the end of the story though that's not mm. why i made international news no on saturday the day after we found out that the victim douglas parkhurst who was a vietnam war veteran and a grandfather Mm-hmm. He lived in West Newfield, Maine. He was originally from Oswego, New York. And in 2013, he confessed to being the driver in a hit-and-run accident that killed a four-year-old girl in 1968 in Fulton, New York. Carolee Ashby was walking with her older sister, Darlene, on October 31st, 1968. They were going to the store to get birthday candles for Darlene's cake. It was her 15th birthday. According to Douglas's 2013 confession, he had been drinking and his brother was passed out in the back seat. <laughs> Parker said in his confession, I know in my heart, and I am 99.9% sure I hit that little girl with my 1962 Tan Buick Special. I am oh so sorry. I can't change anything, but I hope this apology will be accepted and I beg for forgiveness. It's like he actually could change something. He could have come forward sooner. Yes. Douglas Parkhurst was compelled to go into the police station and confess after Fulton police reopened the case when they got a tip as a result of a Facebook post by a retired police investigator. 
After two interviews with police, he went in and signed a four-page confession. He was never charged with her death, and he was aware at the time of his confession that the statute of limitations had run out. And I'm assuming the statute of limitations for hit and run or leaving the scene of his accident. Cause or none, even manslaughter of okay. some kind. We have no idea what None the of the stories. Yeah, but would man, well, manslaughter is a We murder. don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Because none of the stories I read actually said what the charges were. Or if been. there was a charge, like something higher than hit and run, like hit and run resulting in a death, yeah, which some like, states It would have. be nice if they friggin' told us. Yeah. The weird thing was he was a suspect and was questioned about the damage to his car. He told police he had hit a guardrail. For whatever reason, back in 1968, the case wasn't pursued. In 1974, police got a tip that a drunk guy at a party said he had hit Carol Lee and gotten away with it. And that man was Doug Parkhurst. The case was reopened in 2000, but not much had happened. And then it closed again or something, or it went cold. And then the Facebook post by the retired police investigator, whose name was Russ Johnson, he posted a comment on the Fulton Community Facebook page. A woman responded. I didn't say who the tipster was, but it makes me wonder if it's his... Angry sister-in-law. Yeah, because yeah, some of the articles I read had his older brother, Larry, who hadn't, hadn't spoken to him in 20 years. And he's um, not the brother who was in the car Lenny accident. was the brother in the yeah. accident. And the other thing is that I thought was an interesting coincidence is earlier that year in 1968, Douglas Parker's brother, Jack was killed, his older brother Jack was killed, his oldest brother, I guess, was killed in a car crash by hitting a guardrail. Mm-hmm. It was bad enough that his face was unrecognizable and they um, identified him by his hands. Both the Parkers family and the Ashby family had lived in the, that area of New York for generations. After he confessed, Doug Parkhurst moved to Maine. The Ashby family, especially Darlene, the older sister, who was her birthday, and that must have fucking sucked yeah, for, the for the rest of her, of her life, life, see it as a fitting end to his life. They say he never apologized. Mm-hmm. There was a phone call after the confession, after he came out, and he spoke to Darlene's son, and he didn't say he was sorry. He just said, I'm not sure I did it. People keep... I was too drunk. (laughs) One thing I have to take issue with is in the articles, they keep calling it ironic, and it's not ironic. It's not ironic. It's coincidental. It's a bizarre coincidence because Douglas Parkers and Carol Sherrow, I hate her name, Carol Sherrow, Mm -hmm. were unknown to each other, according to all reports. They're just actors in this bizarre story. Darlene Ashby McCain at least feels some resolution, and although she said her mother, who died last year, never getting an apology, would be happy to know in his last moments that Parker saved some kids. Darlene doesn't think she will ever forgive him for making her family go through hell for 40 years. And their father, Darlene and Carolee's dad, George, died years before the confession. Right. And there so, are articles, too, right, about the police in 1968 just not doing If you go on Syracuse.com, you'll find them if you look up Douglas Parkhurst. It's just a bizarre, because we were talking about it when it first came out that he was, that he had been, you know, the a hit and run driver that didn't confess. I said to you in a text, like, if you wrote this in a book, People would be like, come on. Yeah. That's too heavy handed. That's just so. It's too much of a coincidence. You can't put coincidences in, blah, blah, blah. So it's just pretty. um, Yeah. I thought it was a pretty interesting story. And it is. And that's the main reason why it's made so many. You know, like I saw it on The Guardian and just everywhere. It's all over the internet because of the story. Because it's just like, it's one of those things like, oh my God. Yeah. And, you know, I feel bad. Yeah, the guy died. But what a craven, and I know he was only 18. 
But how do you, how can how you can live you, with in yourself? In the same community. Right. For almost 50 years till he moved. How can you do that? And that whole, I'm not sure if I'm the one who did it, blah, blah, blah. Come on, buddy. You're the one who did it. And his brothers knew. I don't know if Larry knew, but Lenny knew. Yeah. yeah. Well, if he's confessing at parties, you know. I know. Okay. He must have confessed to other people. So, anyways, now to the major. Well, thanks for the mini report. Yeah. We should I just thought it was interesting. It is interesting. So, now down to my main one. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying. I realize I do a lot of 70s ones. I'm sorry. I think it's because I. Because the 70s were so cool. Yeah, but yeah. also I think when you're little, things stick in your mind. Yes. And, like, this one, I remembered Gary Gilmore. I remembered his face um, when I see pictures of him. I remember him being in the news, like, people talking about him. But I never really understood it when I was little. I knew that he wanted... I remember understanding, because I was 11 or 12. I remember understanding that he wanted to die. But I didn't realize the significance of his case until... I did, but... Reading it, the whole thing through, I uh, fun, it gave me a new a new appreciation. Fun fact: in um, speech class, junior year in high school, I used him for a speech that I had. To oh, you did? Class. Why? Uh, well, I'll talk about it after you're done because I don't want to spoil it for people who don't know who he is mm. and stuff. Okay, I think most of us who were paying attention in 1976 will remember the name Gary Gilmore. And if you see a photograph, you'll probably recognize him. And if you don't know much about him, you may think that he must have been a really prolific killer or must have committed a really unusual crime to be so famous. I mean, Norman Mailer wrote a book about him, The Executioner's Song, which became a TV movie in 1982. Tommy Lee Jones won an Emmy and Roseanne Arquette was nominated for an Emmy for their roles in that movie. He's been mentioned in punk rock songs. Gary Gilmore, not Norman Mailer. And his name is still recognized by those of us over a certain age. Gary Mark Gilmore murdered two men in cold blood. It's true. But his crimes were rather run-of-the-mill when it comes to a lot of criminals that we usually discuss on this Mm -hmm. podcast. It was the sentence for his crimes that brought him notoriety and made him a household name for a time. He was on the front page of newspapers and front covers of magazines for months, not just in America, but all over the world. The reason for this media attention was that Gary was sentenced to death. He accepted the sentence and chose the method of death firing squad. He refused to fight for his life, but other people did fight against his execution quite strenuously. Gary missed the point about what people were fighting about. He thought he had the right to die, a right to accept his due. But the people fighting to keep him alive were fighting against the death penalty, not his specific sentence. What they were fighting for was larger than Gary Gilmore and his right to live or die. He would be the first execution in the United States for almost a decade. The last execution prior to Gilmore's was June 2, 1967. Louise Jose Mung, age 48, was put to death in Colorado's gas chamber. The 1972 United States Supreme Court's case, Furman v. Georgia, invalidated the, the state's death penalty statutes because they violated the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says, quote, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. To reinstate the death penalty, the states were required to remove arbitrary and discriminatory effect. In 1976, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Gregg v. Georgia, which in essence reinstated the death penalty. It's too complicated to go into because I'm stupid. But basically, it's the states had to make the process more objective. For instance, mandatory for certain crimes and giving the defendant the right to meaningful appellate review. 
which is why now people have long appeal processes. Right. They also noted that the public seemed to favor the death penalty and didn't think it was unconstitutional. Hmm. Well, that's a good reason for them to... to And also, no matter how many strictures you put on it, until the uh, state's entire justice system is objective... The death penalty can't be. It's, not, it's still it's, not. Yeah. I mean, it didn't do anything. Yeah, That's what my speech and speech class was about. There were a lot of people waiting on death row, and I think some other states had still been sentencing people to death during this time. Though I could be wrong. Yeah, they, they sentenced they them, keep but they couldn't they were execute just waiting. them. But it's not that easy to just start executing people after 10 years or so. Even Gary Gilmore found that out. Gary Gilmore's life story reads like so many others we've talked about. Poverty, abuse, crime starting at a young age. He was born in McCamey or Stonewall, Texas, depending on where you get your information, Mm -hmm. in 1940. Well, you know, it's probably a case of... His family lived in one town. The they hospital didn't live was anywhere. Well, well, no, because it's like people say Carlton Fisk is from Vermont because the hospital but, was in Vermont. Yeah, but he wasn't born in a hospital. He was born in a car that okay. they pulled well, over never by mind. the side of the road. Never mind. He was the second child of a family of four boys. Gary's father, Frank Gilmore, had other wives and families that he had abandoned and didn't support at all. Frank married Gary's mother, Bessie, in Sacramento, and she joined him on his nomadic life of grifting and cons. She didn't participate in the crimes, just went on the road with him. Bessie was a Mormon from Provo, Utah, an outcast from the Church of Latter-day Saints. Their first son was Frank Jr. When Gary was born, Frank Sr. named him Faye Robert Kaufman. Faye was Frank Sr.'s mother's name. Kaufman was the pseudonym they were using at the time to avoid arrest. Bessie didn't like this name, and when they left Texas, she changed it to Gary Mark Gilmore. Gary's paternal grandmother, Faye, kept the original birth certificate. This would come back later to cause trouble, as we'll find out. The two younger brothers were Galen and Michael. And Michael wrote a book in 1995 called Shot in the Heart about his brother, mm. obviously. Yeah. Frank made his living selling fake magazine subscriptions, <laughs> among other things, which is why the family kept moving, because he'd sell them and... As I saw, I saw this A&E biography, which was actually pretty good, about Gary Gilmore that um, they called Frank a 100%er because he'd sell stuff and keep 100%. Yeah, nice work if you can get it. Frank was a raging alcoholic who often beat his sons, especially Gary. He also hit his wife, but not as often. Michael later said that Frank Sr. only beat him once, but he did beat the other boys more. Michael was 11 years younger than Gary, so maybe by the time he was born, you know. Dad ran out of energy. Michael did call Frank Sr. a cruel and unreasonable man. Bessie, for her part, was at best non-demonstrative and would not let her sons hug or kiss her. At worst, she also beat them. Her sister, Ida D'Amico, told People Magazine in 1977, Oh, and I was going to say, I got my information from a lot of different sources Mm -hmm. so i do cite some things specific but a lot of stuff was in all of them Um, so she told people magazine in 1977 gary had a sad childhood bessie was quite mean always beating and slapping him Mm. gary's father frank was even meaner when he was drunk Gary later said that this was untrue. In the Daily Beast a few years ago, Lawrence Schiller, film director who directed the movie, the TV movie, photojournalist, writer, recalled in an interview he had with Gary on the eve of his execution. So it starts out with Schiller speaking. Is there anything about your relationship with your mother or father, I began, that is so personal to you that, even at the moment of death, you'd rather not talk about? God damn it, Gilmore replied. I'm getting pissed off at that kind of question. Man, my mother's a hell of a woman. She did the very goddamn best she could. We always had something to eat. We always had someone to tuck us in. You really love her, man, don't you? I said. Mm. 
God damn it, yes, Gilmore said, his voice rising. I don't want to hear any fucking bullshit that she was mean to me. She never hit me. Schiller wrote that he continued to try to bring up Bessie to Gary. Why, I don't know, because he obviously didn't want to talk about it. And why blame the mother? Always the mother's fault. Yeah, it's always the mother's fault. Finally, Gary said, you go down that road one more time, I'll invite you, uninvite you to my execution. <laughs> Betsy was superstitious, crazy, or both. She believed that when she was a girl, she had conjured up a demonic spirit while playing on a Ouija board, and that this spirit had attached itself to her family. When one of her sisters was killed and another paralyzed in an accident, she was sure the spirit was to blame. When she married Frank, she found out his mother, Faye, was a medium. One night she was at Faye's with three of her sons. Gary was a young boy still. Michael had not yet been born. Faye was going to have a seance to contact the spirit who had died while still under suspicion for murder. Bessie wanted nothing to do with it and stayed in another room. Later, she found Faye depleted, frightened, and weak. She helped her to bed. Later that night, Bessie woke up feeling like someone was touching her. When she turned over, she was looking into the face of a leering creature, mm. and it wasn't Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was funny. She jumped out of bed and saw Faye, who was an invalid, staggering toward her, yelling at her to get out, saying, It knows who you are! Bessie ran to gather the boys. In Gary's room, she saw the creature leaning over him, looking into his eyes. She took her sons and quickly left. Faye died shortly afterward. Gary started to have nightmares that haunted him the rest of his life, that he was being beheaded or that something was after him. Bessie said she saw the creature again in their home shortly before Gary started getting into trouble. Gary kept having the nightmares and saying something was in the room with him. Bessie decided that the evil spirit had taken over her son's soul. That was when his life started down its path of destruction, and Gary seemed to have a death wish. She was sure, as was Gary, that he would die a violent death. But then that could just be a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. couldn't it? Bessie also told her children many times that she had witnessed a hanging as a child and it scarred her for life. Michael researched Utah records later while writing his book and concluded she must have made the story up. Although she could have been somewhere else when yeah. she Whether she just liked to spin tales or believe this stuff, the woman had some things going on. And while it's convenient to believe your son is possessed instead of the fact that you were a shitty parent and he had a shitty upbringing <laughs> with no love or attention, it does doesn't make the evil possession true. And you might want to think that, but why don't you try, you know, being a loving parent? Mm -hmm. Although I don't know if her and her husband were capable of that. I don't know. Frank and Bessie moved often around the western part of the United States with their sons. Frank often called Bessie crazy and made fun of her religion, referring to Brigham Young as Brigham Young. (laughs) Oh, Brigham Young. I know. Brigham Young, like, because they always married young women. And Bessie called Frank a Catholic, a cat licker, (laughs) and threatened to kill him. I don't know how true that is, but I laughed because I read it in Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. In 1948, the family landed in Portland, Oregon. Frank actually started a legitimate business, a publication called The Building Code Digest, and was on the road selling it a lot. He made an okay living, but he was gone often, which was probably better for the boys. When Gary was 11, the family moved to Salt Lake City. In 1951, Michael was born. And he spells it Michael, M-I-K-A-L. That's the way they spelled it. Gary started hanging around with other criminally-minded kids. And the family only stayed there a year before going back to Portland. And he soon made friends with all the criminal kids in Portland. Mm. He played hooky and drank. He liked to tempt fate by standing on a train trestle and staring down the train and then jumping off at the last minute. He liked the attention he got from his stunts and his bad behavior. He got good grades in school and tested with an IQ of over 130. And he had artistic talent, but he dropped out of high school in the 90s. 
ninth grade. According to the A&E biography I watched, he hitchhiked to Texas at age 14 with his parents' approval because they thought he should sow his wild oats. Yeah, so right. this was in about 1954. It was, you know, he was born in 1940, so mid-50s. So hitchhiking wasn't, a, wasn't unusual. He ran an illegal card game and used his profits on women, booze, and drugs. <laughs> but he tired of that in a few weeks. And he went back to Oregon. When he returned, he started up a car theft ring and got arrested several times. His father got him remanded to his custody a few times, but he ended up finally being sent to the McLaren Reform School for Boys in 1955 in Woodburn, Oregon for car theft for 15 months. His parents bailed him out whenever they could, but they could only do that so many times before it stopped working. According to Michael, the Reform School had harsh punishments, one of which was to put the boys in a cage in a room with broken windows in the middle of winter. Gary spent most of his time in the reform school in maximum security because of his violent behavior. Gary later looked back on this part of his life and decided he was in jail because he wasn't committed enough to being a good thief. And he also realized <laughs> that this was the time he stopped caring about anything. In 1958, Gary was arrested for statutory rape. The girl he raped became pregnant. Although his parents got him off on that charge, he was sent to Oregon State Prison in Salem on an old car theft charge. While he was in prison, his victim gave birth. Gary's parents told him the baby had died, which was not true. He never found out the truth. So he has a kid out there. Mm. Maybe it's Gordon, my ex-husband. He's the same age, 1958. While in prison, the issue of his birth certificate came up. The only birth certificate they could find had Gary's false name, Faye Robert Kaufman. Gary's parents didn't feel like explaining anything to the prison officials. So Gary became convinced that he was not his father's biological son, and that's why Frank Sr. hated him so much. Hmm. His bad behavior added time to his sentence, but he got out briefly in 1961. He was serving time again for armed robbery and assault in 1962, when he was told his father had died of lung cancer. Frank Sr. had been diagnosed the previous year. Gary Gilmore became distraught and broke the light bulb in his cell and tried to use it to slit his wrists. A lot of things I read make a big deal about how, despite his father's abuse, he was devastated by his death. I think that's really simplifying the parent-child relationship. Mm -hmm. His father was an asshole, but probably had some things about him that people liked, or he wouldn't have gotten away with being a con man. Kids always want their parents' love no matter how bad they've been treated. Familial relationships are complicated, so it's silly to speculate why Gary was so devastated. Yeah. A lot That happens to a lot of people. You have a bad relationship with someone and they die, and I think you'd feel like you're never going to be able to fix whatever was wrong now. That's I mean, true. And also, he just out, had outbursts all the time anyway. Because of his outburst, he was put in solitary confinement and was not allowed to attend the funeral. In 1964, he was sentenced 15 years as a habitual offender in the Oregon State prison was a harsh sentence and one that he carried a lot of resentment about. He was violent, suicidal, and destructive. He didn't care about anything. He hated prison. The lights were always on. It was noisy. It was driving him batty. I used to be a mentor, and it was a, it was the juvenile prison, but they never turned the lights off. I know. Never. Uh, he yeah, it seems like it would just make people who are already have mental health problems worse. Yeah. He once told his cousin Brenda in a letter that the only affordable emotion you have in prison is anger. In his many hours in segregation, or solitary, or whatever you want to call it, he drew, wrote poetry, and cultivated his artsy side. He had dental issues that bothered him and made him assault prison dentists on more than one occasion. He had dentures that never fit and hurt him constantly. And he complained a lot about it. And they had the warden on the A&E thing. They were interviewing him, and he, he kind of poo-pooed it. But, you know, yeah. it's just if one of those things. all the time, yeah. And he... 
He involved other prisoners in his dental crusade. Mm -hmm. They all attempted suicide at the same time to protest. protest. Some of them got really hurt and they said, Gary only got a scratch, but whatever. The prison officials got tired of him stirring up trouble. In 1970, he was put into the mental ward of the prison. Gary obviously had issues, whether from his upbringing or underlying mental illness or both. In prison, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder and psychotic decompensation. He was given antipsychotic drugs in prison, which back then had especially bad side effects, and he did not like taking them. I think they gave him shots. He was given prolixin, which makes a person drowsy, lethargic, apathetic, and drooly and like mm. shuffle. I have an idea that the drugs I gave him were more for behavior control than for any mental issues, though I don't dispute that he had mental issues. I've known people who have been in mental hospitals, and the same thing happened to them. People are drugged up to keep him docile. Right. Bessie begged them to take him off the drugs, and her friend was interviewed, says that they couldn't stand to see Gary shuffling and drooling. Although he had impulse control issues and anger issues, I think this was a convenient diagnosis just to enable the prison officials to keep him drugged up and easier to handle. During this time in 1971, his younger brother Galen died. I'm not sure of the details because they were totally different stories. Mm -hmm. I read that he was stabbed in the stomach and the family had no money for medical costs. But then A&E said that he died during surgery. So maybe both. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This time, Gary was allowed out to attend the funeral. Although he was not well-behaved in prison and was prone to violent outbursts, he was granted a conditional release in 1972 based on his artistic talent. He had worked in the art shop at prison and won a bunch of contests. He was to live weekdays in a halfway house and attend community college to study art. He never even registered for classes and was back in prison for armed robbery within a month after holding up a gas station. In 1973, he was sentenced to nine years in Oregon State Prison. He became more violent and hard to handle. The prison decided to put him back on prolixin, which gives me, yeah, supports my theory yes. that they were just doing it to keep him from being right. violent. He asked for an alternative because he did not want to go back on it. And they gave him one. In 1975, Gary Gilmore was transferred to a maximum security federal prison in Marion, Illinois, a place that was better at dealing with hard-to-handle prisoners. He had been corresponding with his cousin, Brenda Nickel. Her name was Wagstaff. She had remarried by 1997 when that biography was made, and I don't know if that's still her name, but she was the daughter of his Aunt Ida, his mom Bessie's sister. They lived in Provo, Utah. Brenda was a few years younger than Gary and had fond memories of him. His letters to her were thoughtful and heartfelt, and she thought that he had just had a lot of bad breaks and bad parents. She thought that with love and support, he could make something out of his life. She petitioned to get him released to her custody. He would live with her parents, Gary's Aunt Ida and Uncle Vern D'Amico in Provo, Utah, and work in Vern's shoe repair shop. According to Lawrence Schiller, Brenda told Gary, if you fuck up, I'll be the first to turn you in. In April 1976, Gary arrived in Provo with one gym bag full of stuff to his name. Gary only lasted a couple weeks at Vern's shoe shop. Then he got a job at an insulation factory. He was making three fifty an hour, which wasn't bad at the time. This was 1976 in Provo. I don't know what the standard of living there was, but it was a beautiful place, though. Uh-huh. But he spent it on drugs and booze and was bad with money. During this time, he met Nicole Baker Barrett, who was 19, the mother of two children, Sonny Marie, four, and Jeremy, two. And she had been married three times, the first time at age 14. Gary, who was 35 at the time, fell hard for Nicole and she for him. It was after he started dating Nicole that the living situation at his aunt and uncle's house became unbearable for Aunt Aunt Ida. She started to get migraines. She later said, Gary got mean when he drank, 
and it wasn't pleasant to be around him. That's why we had to ask him to leave. Brenda thought the relationship with Nicole would not end well. She likened Gary to a sailor who had been at sea too long, and Nicole was the siren. She could see Gary headed for the rocks. Uh-uh. He would just steal stuff, too. Like, if he wanted something and he didn't have money, he'd just take... Like, he stole beer all the time. He just wouldn't... He would just steal stuff. Uh, just, like, walk in and take it yeah. and walk out? Yeah. yeah. Gary moved into Nicole's $115 per month apartment in Spanish Fork, which is about eight or nine miles away from Provo. He continued to drink heavily. He also took the drug Foranol for headache. The side effects of Foranol are dizziness, anxiety, agitation, mood changes, insomnia, among Jesus. other things. Couple this with heavy drinking and other drugs. Add in his behavioral and mental issues and you have a recipe for something really bad. Oh, and the other side effect, which probably did not help his mood, was sexual dysfunction. Mm. I'm sure when you have a young, hot girlfriend and are a bit jealous, this does not help matters at all. An aunt of Nicole's told People Magazine back in 1977 that Nicole Baker was a strong young woman. She hated being on welfare. Once she held two jobs and was going to high school to get her diploma. Nicole doesn't hide from trouble. She always handles everything herself. Nicole was the type of person who loved children and picked up stray dogs and cats and wounded birds to nurse. She wanted to be a nurse herself. In Gary, she saw someone who needed help and love. She wanted to give him that. And as her aunt said, she always handled everything, and she thought she could handle Gary Gilmore. Mm -hmm. But after eight weeks of his frightening outbursts, possessiveness, and neediness, Nicole had had enough and left Gary, not telling him where she was going. Gary was beside himself. He went to friends' homes looking for her, her mom's house. No one knew where she was, or so they claimed. Shortly after Gary arrived in Provo, he had bought a blue Ford Mustang from a local used car dealer, Val Conlon, who was played by Pat Corley in the movie oh. Phil from Murphy Brown. Right. I was like, who is that? The car was in bad shape and constantly breaking down, and he still owed money on it. A few weeks later, he saw a 10-year-old white Ford pickup truck parked in the lot. The truck was expensive, but Gary wanted it and told Val. Val said, no way. Gary still owed money on the Mustang, and if he wanted the truck, he'd need a cosigner. But Gary was determined to get the truck of his dreams. Gary had some hot items he wanted to get rid of, including a bag of nine stolen guns, mm. which he showed had showed Nicole. This was the whole thing, him wanting the truck, was before he broke up with Nicole. But the day they, the day they broke up, or the day after when he was going around looking for her, he somehow talked Val Conlon into selling him the truck. Even though no one would co-sign for it. I don't know. Val Conlon warned him that if he got behind, the truck would be repossessed right away. He said he had some hot items he was going to sell. That's what he told Nicole. Gary drove off in his new truck to continue to search for Nicole. He stopped by Nicole's mom, Catherine Baker's house. This is how People Magazine described Catherine Baker in 1977. <laughs> Catherine Baker, 40, mother of Nicole in April, is a shrill, nervous chain smoker mm. who wears a variety of wigs to cover her bleach-thinning hair. She has lost 20 pounds since Gilmore's arrest. A mother of five, she and her husband Charles, a career soldier and sailor, separated in 1975. Her neighbors and the police in Pleasant Grove, Utah, described the Baker household as, quote, a hood hangout. They're a wild bunch who kept to themselves but partied all the time, says a neighbor. Mrs. Baker had a Shetland pony in her backyard, which the animal control office took away to feed once. Catherine, who once worked as a practical nurse, excoriates Gilmore as, quote, a Charles Manson who took control of my daughter's mind. Still, she is ambivalent. I feel pity for him, she says. One minute you hate him and the next minute you can't. Yeah. Nicole wasn't at her mother's house when Gary showed up. And Catherine told Gary to go away and leave Nicole alone. Instead, Nicole's younger sister, April, hopped in the truck with Gary. April was 18 at the time. 
supposedly had a crush on Gary and was mentally unstable and on a lot of drugs. Great combination. (laughs) I know. A neighbor described her as even prettier than Nicole. But April had spent all but two months of 1976 institutionalized for mental issues. Her former psychiatrist said, quote, she was on acid a lot. (laughs) April had gotten out of the mental hospital in May and had started taking drugs again. Now, she did have mental issues. I can see she's probably taking drugs to self-medicate. Right. Or maybe her mental issues were caused by a lot of drug taking. Who knows? About a month prior, Catherine, though a former nurse, as People Magazine said, was convinced April was possessed by Satan and had a Mormon bishop perform exorcism rites. The family were lapsed Mormons. There's a lot of this possession stuff going on with these people. I know. Well, maybe part of it is their their religion. I don't know. But they drank smoke and dig drugs, so they weren't religious Mormons. But the church did, did perform the exorcism. They did it studi. When Gary pulled up the night before his arrest, April was eager to take a ride in his new truck. She told him she wanted to stay out all night. Gary was hurt and angry about what he saw as Nicole's desertion, as he later told her in letters from prison. He probably felt like he could hurt Nicole by making her jealous. About 10.30 that night, Gary stopped at a Sinclair gas station, which are the ones that had little dinosaurs. Yeah, I remember. I used to like those. There's still one. um, It was down near Pine Point Beach, but they moved it up to... Cool story, I'm sorry. He told April he had to make a phone call and went around the corner into the gas station and out of her sight. Max Jensen was working the 3 to 11 shift that night. He was a 24-year-old newlywed with a baby who had just finished his first year at Brigham Young University for law school. Mm, They're always newlyweds with babies. (sighs) He had only been working there for a month or so trying to make money to support his family. Max and his wife Colleen were devout Mormons. Max Jensen had spent two years on a mission in Brazil. Their dream, according to Colleen, was for Max to be a lawyer and they would have, quote, 10 acres with horses and cows. Mm -hmm. But it was not to be. Gary approached Max Jensen at gunpoint and told him to empty his pockets. Max did as he was told. Gary told Max to go into the bathroom and lie down on the floor with his arms underneath his body, which Max did. And I think it's face down. It didn't specify, but knowing that type of person, Gary, I doubt he would look someone in the face and shoot him. I know. Gilmore put the gun to Max's head and said this one is for me then he fired again and said this one is for nicole obviously this account had come from gary himself right if it's true doesn't really make sense because the max had nothing to do with it he was just a victim of his own sucky luck but i guess gary just felt the need to take it out i think he was trying to show nicole this is what i'm doing right because of you because you left me yeah. Gary left quickly, not even picking up the cash that Max had left on the counter. He took April to see the movie One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, but they only stayed a short while. I wonder what she thought of the movie or she saw any of it since she had been institutionalized so much. He went over to his cousin Brenda's house. Brenda thought Gary was acting agitated and weird. She had a feeling something was going on. He left with April and went and rented a room at the Holiday Inn. It's not clear what went on in the room, but a relative of April's told People magazine that Gary, quote, smacked April around. And I'm thinking she was maybe a surrogate for her sister. So God only knows what happened. Since he had sexual dysfunction, maybe he didn't try to rape her. But He dropped her off the next morning and she was withdrawn and shaken. She ended up going back to the Timpanagos Community Mental Health Center four days later. Later that day, July 20th, Gary was having trouble with his new truck. There was a gas station about three blocks from his Uncle Vern's house with a service garage run by Norman Fulmer. He told Gary the truck would take about 20 minutes to fix, so Gary went for a walk. 
He walked towards the D'Amico's house. As he approached, he noticed the Center City Motel next door to his aunt and uncle's house. Ben Bushnell was 25 and managed the Center City Motel. He lived there with his wife and baby son. His wife was pregnant with their second child, due after the first of the year. Like the Jensen's, the Bushnells were Mormons. The D'Amico's knew the Bushnells on a casual say-hi basis. On this day, Gary, who did not know Ben, although a story in The Guardian said that Ben had told him to keep the noise down once in a motel room, but I don't think that's true. He entered the motel lobby as Ben was returning from the store. Ben asked Gary what he wanted. Gary demanded the cash box, and when Ben gave it to him, Gary shot Ben in the head. Ben's wife, Debbie, heard popping noises in the motel office, and her immediate thought was that they were balloons. She thought some kids were in the office, but when she opened the door to look, she saw Gary running away. Her husband was on the floor dying of the gunshot. They had been married for three years. Gary rushed back to the garage to pick up his truck. On the way, he stuffed the cash in his pocket, about $125, and put the cash box under a bush. About a block past that, he grabbed his gun by the muzzle and went to hide it in some shrubbery. Something made the gun fire, a branch catching on the trigger most likely, and the bullet went through his hand between his thumb and palm. He wrapped something around his hand. I couldn't find out what, but it was probably a handkerchief or bandana. Still, even bandaged, he managed to leave a blood trail back to the garage. When he picked up his truck, Norman Fulmer noticed the crude bandage job. He had a police scanner going, so he knew about the robbery murder at the nearby motel. He wrote down Gilmore's license number and called the police as soon as Gary drove away. Uncle Vern and Aunt Ida heard the commotion, paramedics and a SWAT team, and came out to see what was going on. Vern somehow found out Gary was involved. He was upset, but not surprised, given Gary's escalating bad behavior. Ida called Brenda to let her know what was going on. Ida told her daughter that Gary had just killed, quote, that nice man next door, Benny Bushnell. A few minutes later, Gary called Brenda, telling her he had been shot and needed painkillers and help. She told him she needed his address and she'd be there. He gave it to her and she hung up and called police. Good for Brenda. In the meantime, well, she did say, if you fuck up, I'll be there. Yeah, that's right. In the meantime, Gary was anxious that Brenda wasn't coming. Hmm. He left the house where he'd holed up as a friend's house or something. They weren't clear. Everything I saw wasn't clear, but it was some friend of his that lived nearby. So he left that house and drove to Catherine Baker's house, Nicole's mom. Right. Somehow Gary had driven right through the police roadblock. But the police figured it out and caught up with him. He gave himself up without a fight and asked them to be careful about his wounded hand. They made him lay on the ground to cuff him. Nicole was in her mother's house and came out and saw Gary. She overheard some of the cops talking about the two murders, and she wondered if leaving him had somehow spurred the violence. She had to be restrained from running to him. She cried, I just want to look into his eyes, that crazy man, that crazy man. (laughs) She later said Gary reminded her of a beaten dog that keeps coming back to get petted. The next day when Brenda visited Gary in jail, he asked her why she turned him in. She answered, you commit a murder on Monday and commit a murder on Tuesday. I wasn't waiting for Wednesday to come around. Nice line, Brenda. Yeah. By some accounts, Gary never really forgave Brenda for this betrayal, mainly because <laughs> by turning him in, she could he could never be with Nicole again. He couldn't understand why she just didn't drive him to the state line and let him go. But Brenda claimed that Gary thanked her for turning him in, saying she had saved him from killing others. When Gary was arrested, he agreed to speak with only one officer, Gerald Nielsen. At first, Gary would not admit to the murders. He claimed to have alibis for both crimes and witnesses who had vouched for him. He told the cop that he had interrupted the real killer of Bushnell committing the murder robbery at the motel and that's why he got shot in the hand he said he was with april all night the night of july 19th she could tell them that 
Of course, April told them how he, quote, went to make a phone call at the Sinclair gas station. An eyewitness had seen Gary with the cash box and the gun. The used car dealer, Val Conlin, found the stash of stolen guns and turned them into the police. And it makes me wonder, though, why did he have them? And then I wondered, did Gary give him the guns to get the truck? It just seemed kind of fishy. Like, why would he have those guns? Yeah. And how did Gary get the truck? Yeah. That's kind of glossed over. I know. Maybe I should read the book, but I hate Norman Mailer. I know. Sorry, Norman, if you And read. you don't even know what's true in no. that and what isn't. It's a fiction. It's one of those. I know. Mm. So the the problem is you can never get facts from no, those because they just make stuff up. Well, like I watched the movie, and which was I'll talk about after. Yeah. Gary finally confessed to the pair of murders, saying he didn't know why he did it. He admitted that if he hadn't been stopped, he probably would have kept on killing. He told Officer Nielsen he had read the obituaries and felt bad about the two men he had killed. He told Nielsen, I ought to die for that. Nielsen said, do you want to die? And Gary answered, do you want to die? And Nielsen said, no, I have no desire to die. And Gary said, I don't either, but I ought to for that. I'm afraid I'll do it again. August 3rd was Gary's preliminary hearing. The prosecutor, Noah Wooten, told Norman Mailer that he was impressed with Gary's intelligence and felt that Gilmore was a great example of how the system fails to rehabilitate. Someone with Gary's gifts should have been able to make something of himself, but he would never be anything but a danger to society. Right. This seems like kind of a back ass. Well, also, too, intelligence and talent behavior and stuff have nothing to do with each other. Oh, shit. While Gary was in jail, he and Nicole wrote love letters constantly, sometimes several days. She's a nut, too. Although Nicole's family thought she was nuts, she couldn't free herself Hmm. from his thrall. The prosecution decided to only try the Bushnell murder since the evidence was strongest for that one. Even without the confession, there were plenty of witnesses and evidence. While in jail in Orem, Utah, July 22nd, Gary and Brenda spoke on the phone. This is the conversation according to the executioner's song. Brenda, Gary, you're going down hard this time. You're going to ride this one clear to the bottom. It doesn't sound like something. It sounds like something Norman Mailer would make up. Gary, man, how do you know I'm not innocent? Brenda, Gary, what's the matter with your head? Gary, I don't know. I must have been insane. Brenda, what about your mother? What do you want me to tell her? Well, actually, though, this was, it was recorded. Gary, tell her it's true. Brenda, okay, anything else? And Gary said, just tell her I love her. When he said, tell her it's true, Gary's lawyers tried to say that he was saying, tell her that I'm arrested. It's true, I'm arrested. Not that it's true I did the crime. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't clarify what she thought they meant when she was Well, maybe Gary should have been more clear himself. Prosecutor Noah Wooten, while not necessarily pro-death penalty, argued for death because... That's what they do now. Because he felt that Gary Mark Gilmore could never be rehabilitated. He thought that he would be a danger to society if ever released, as he had proven he was unable to spend more than a few weeks out of prison before getting in trouble. He also figured that even if Gilmore was sentenced to death, the sentence wouldn't be carried out... Utah had not executed anyone for 16 years. The trial only lasted two days and began October 5, 1976. A ballistics report showed the gun that shot Bushnell was the gun that shot Gary in the hand, and it was the gun found in the bushes. There was a trail of blood from the 
motel to the bush. A witness identified Gary as being at the Center City Motel at the time of the shooting. The two court-appointed defense lawyers, Craig Snyder and Mike Mike Esplin, rested without calling any witnesses or putting on a defense at all. Gary asked the judge if he could please take the stand. He figured he might as well tell his story and he thought he could plead insanity. He said he had disassociated during the crime. He felt he couldn't control the outcome. The defense lawyers argued that they had consulted four psychiatrists, all who agreed Gary was aware of his actions and knew what they that they were wrong. The defense attorney said that? Yes. They said that while Gilmore had antisocial personality disorder, which was most likely exacerbated by the foreignol and excessive drinking, he was not legally insane at the time of the murder. After hearing that, Gary withdrew his request. He resigned himself to his fate. His letters to Nicole admitted how much pain he was in without her, and he probably would have continued his killing spree had he not been caught. In his closing, Prosecutor Wooten stressed to the jury the manner of the killing, that Gary had held the gun right to Benjamin Bushnell's head and shot him. There was no ambiguity about his intentions. Mike S. Esplin's closing argued for leniency, second-degree murder or acquittal. He said maybe Gary had accidentally fired, causing the injury to his hand. No one really knows. Not surprisingly, this argument didn't work. Mm. Gary Mark Gilmore was found guilty of murder in the first degree on October 7, 1976. The jury deliberated for an hour and 20 minutes. After lunch that day, the sentencing phase, called the mitigation hearing, took place. Defense attorneys did not want to ask family members to testify on Gary's behalf since they were the ones who had turned him in. At the end of the hearing, Gary spoke to the jury himself. He didn't show any remorse. He stood in front of the jury and said, I'm finally glad to see the jury is looking at me. The sentence came back as death. Gary's choices were hanging or firing squad. He chose the firing squad because he felt that a hanging could be botched. But if the rope breaks, are you still allowed to go free? (laughs) Do they still have that? Some have thought that as a son of a Mormon, he may have chosen it because of the Mormon concept of blood atonement. If you shed blood, then your blood should be shed. Oh, but yeah. I don't think so because he's Catholic. Yeah, I think he was raised Catholic. Right. I don't think he was. He might not have been raised in any religion, but he wasn't Mormon. He had I would said feel like it was the less likely to be botched. Right, and I would also feel like if you had to choose between those two, shooting would be more immediate. Yes. Where hanging, I said that I would pick that. firing squad over anything else if it were me. Yeah, it's the fastest, most definite method. And it makes no bones about what you're doing. You're killing someone. Right. And I say it later in this, but I'm anti-death penalty, but if you're going to do it, don't pussyfoot around it. Right. You know? Anyway. Gilmore's attorney said they would appeal, but Gary had other plans. He fired Esplin and Snyder and hired Dennis Boas, a lawyer from California. Gary had made clear that he wanted to go through with his execution. He did not want to appeal. Gary Gilmore told District Judge J. Robert Bullock, You sentenced me to die. Unless it's a joke or something, I want to go ahead and do it. It's my decision. Boas was an attorney from California who had written on a whim to Gilmore to show his support for Gary's determination to go through with the sentence. But the relationship soured when Gary decided Boas just wanted to write about his experience with Gary and that he talked too much to the media. Hmm. So Gary fired him. The original date of the execution was November 16, 1976, which when you think about it is very... It's very it fast. fast. Yeah. Because he killed the people. In July. Yeah. It was July 20th. Wow. Yeah. Oh. When Gary didn't want to appeal, Attorney General Earl Dorius was in a quandary. The execution was supposed to take place within 60 days of the sentencing. But as he told Norman Mailer, there were no plan B's in case this didn't happen within the given time. Could Gilmore possibly even go free on a technicality? Utah hadn't executed an inmate in so long that Dorius wasn't sure they would be able to be ready in such a short time. He wasn't even sure if he could put together a firing squad. 
I'm like, really? How hard is it? I know the bureaucratic wheels move slowly, but you couldn't put together a firing squad in 60 days? Well, I assume you have to find the right people to do it, and there's mm. probably rules, but I don't I mean, know. I'm not pro-capital punishment. No, I'm I just know. saying it just seemed weird. But A few days before the scheduled execution, Gilmore appeared in front of the Utah Supreme Court. He told them he did not want to spend his life in prison, and especially not on death row. He said, and I saw the film of this on the a and The A&E has a lot of video archives, and they have a lot of him on video. I think it's good to see compared to, I'm going to talk about it later. Gary said, they always want to get in on the act. I don't think they have ever really done anything effective in their lives. I would like them all, including that group of reverends and rabbis from Salt Lake City, to butt out. This is my life. And this is my death. It's been sanctioned by the courts, and I accept that. Gary had dreamed about death his whole life. He decided that he must owe a debt from a past life, and his manner of death could be a lesson to others. The justices voted four to one to allow him to die. He requested a six-pack of beer as his last meal. Mm. I wonder what kind of beer, though. November 15th passed without Gary Gilmar being executed. The American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, AACP, protested the execution and the legal decisions surrounding it. They felt it set a bad precedent to allow prisoners to just dispense with appeals. His former lawyers also continued the appeal process, feeling duty-bound to do it. Bessie Gilmore expressed concern about the sentence to her younger son, Michael, but Michael told her not to worry. They haven't executed anyone in this country for 10 years, and they're not going to start with Gary. (laughs) The ACLU and the NAACP were concerned with the current prison population and the future prisoners' rights to appeals and stuff like that. As I said earlier, it wasn't just about his specific case. It was about all current and future cases. Right, and just so people who who don't know who he is know this, the NAACP was involved, but Gary Gilmore was white. Yes, he was white. At the time of his sentence, there were over 350 people on death row in the United States, including including four women. The anti-capital punishment groups were convinced that the first execution would cause the domino effect. Mm-hmm. At the time of Gary's sentencing, Time Magazine reported that dozens of men were calling the Utah State Prison Warden to volunteer their shooting services. That, I, th- I think the same thing would happen today. That's why you have to vet the firing yeah. squad. Gary was not happy about this turn of events, and while he and Nicole had been corresponding via letters, she also hitchhiked to see him in jail as often as she could, about 20 miles. According to the movie, the jail didn't seem to have much of a moratorium on people having physical contact because Nicole is always sitting on Gary's lap, kind of like doing a lap mm. dance on his lap. And apparently, his letters were not read or censored because it was through the letters their suicide pact was later revealed. Gary told Nicole to visit as many doctors as she could and collect as many barbiturates as possible. And since this was the 70s, they were handing them out like, <laughs> yeah, candy, like candy. She was able to get about 70 pills. She put about half in a balloon and smuggled them into the prison in her vagina. I guess they didn't do cavity searches back then. I guess not. Well, I, too, if you're visiting someone in prison... Well, they, they show they her a, in the movie that they did a strip search. Right, but if you're visiting somebody in prison, do they do a cavity search of you? I don't know. Because I don't know. know. A lot of visits. Let's go. Yeah. Let's see. Maybe they don't, but they did do a strip search. Right. At least in the movie, probably so they could show her being stripped. At midnight on November 16th, both were to take overdoses and kill themselves. Nicole took her pills at the appointed time, but Gary took his later. Nicole ended up in a coma. Her family thought that Gary delayed his suicide attempt in order to make sure Nicole died while he was saved, but I don't 
I don't know if that's true, but in the movie, her mother accuses him of wanting Nicole to be a vegetable so no one else could have her even after he dies, which could be true too. Whatever the reason, both survived. Nicole was put in a hospital and her mother decided she would be kept there under psychiatric care indefinitely in order to keep her away from Gary. According to People magazine, it was a court-ordered stay because it was her third suicide attempt. Lots of mentally ill people in this story that are mm-hmm. like depressed and committing suicide. And I would say too, I don't think Gary had any way of knowing she'd be a vegetable. No. But he obviously why do you make a suicide pact with No, he wanted person? her to die. He, right. He wanted her to die because he believed in an afterlife and he thought they could be together. Mm-hmm. Gary said Or he didn't want anyone to have her when he was dead. That's true too, but he yeah. Or he was just a controlling psychopath. Yes, he was too. Gary sent yellow roses for days, but the hospital kept them away from Nicole saying they needed to divert her attention away from him. That's nice that you can send roses from prison. I know! He had a lot of... You'll see. Mm. They never had contact again. Gary was back in prison within days, if not sooner, from the hospital, obviously. However, his suicide attempt ended up delaying the progress of his execution... Ha ha, Gary. So he started a hunger strike because he couldn't see Nicole. In its November 22nd, 1976 issue, Time Magazine described what Gary Gilmore's execution would be like. If Gilmore is shot, five volunteer marksmen will do the job. They will probably be law enforcement officials, though none will be from the staff of the prison 20 miles from Salt Lake City where the death sentence will be carried out. Gilmore, hooded and strapped by the neck, arms and legs, to a wooden chair, will have a circular piece of black cloth pinned over his heart. Resting high-powered 30 caliber Winchester hunting rifles on a 2x4 railing, the squad will simultaneously fire one round from 20 feet away. There is no provision for a second volley or a coup de grace, and one rifle will be loaded with a blank so that no one will know for sure he was responsible for the condemned man's death. Yeah, gee, isn't that nice? I know, they always like... It's so bullshit. They always have these stupid little rules that... Right. If you're gonna be on the firing squad, you are as complicit as the other four guys. Just like if you're like driving the getaway car where somebody's murdered, you're complicit in the murder. So don't do the stupid, oh, we're going to have a blank. So for the rest of your life, you can, you can, you can rationalize, maybe I'm not the one who killed him. It's mm-hmm. bullshit. You volunteer. They are volunteers. You're on the squad. Yeah. You're pulling the trigger. Put five fucking bullets in the mm-hmm. rifles. Well, his brother claims that he saw five bullet holes in the chair. So I don't know. Maybe they tell so maybe they didn't put, maybe they just tell the public they I put know. a blank so the public will feel better that the guys on the firing squad aren't yeah. killers too, which they are. Around this time, Gary had authorized Uncle Vern to sell the rights to his story. At this point, and Eli, Eli Wallach played Uncle Vern, by the way. Mm. At this point, <laughs> he had been in the news for months, and his story was famous world over. Vern sold the rights to the story to Lawrence Schiller for $52,000, which was to be distributed among Gary's relatives, and that was like all like the rights to the TV, to the book, to blah, wow. blah, blah. Lawrence Schiller was, a, they keep calling him an entrepreneur, but he was also, he had been a photojournalist for life and stuff. He was, I don't know. Mm. And in the movie, he's always wearing a friggin' parka over his suit, but then every photograph I saw of him, he's wearing that, so maybe <laughs> thought Utah was cold. Because by this time it was winter. It was right. November, December. Vern says on the A&E special that he didn't know anything about negotiating that kind of thing and what it was worth. He didn't know if it was a good amount of money or not. And supposedly it was distributed among some of Gary's family, but supposedly some of the victims got compensation. I think that if I were in the victims' families, I would have sued Lawrence Schiller for some compensation yes, I would. on the movie and stuff. Uh-huh. And Norman Mailer. Yeah. Gary had an attorney, Ron Stanger, 
argue on his behalf to the Utah Board of Pardons that he wanted his sentence executed. They agreed, and his execution was set for December 6th, two days after his 36th birthday. But he was again thwarted, Mm. this time by his mother, Bessie. Stanford law professor Anthony G. Amsterdam, I wonder if he's related to Maury, filed a petition with Supreme Court Justice Byron White, who was the judge that handled emergency appeals in Utah. Amsterdam was filing for Bessie on her son's behalf. She argued that because of his hunger strike, he was unable to decide for himself what was right for him. Amsterdam was a crusader against capital punishment. He had been crusading us over 10 years, like the whole during the moratorium. Mm -hmm. And I've no doubt he used her to do the filing. People Magazine, from a few weeks later, she says, what does he, meaning Gary, have to do with me? But despite her obvious reluctance, Amsterdam successfully argued the stay, which Justice White had turned over to the full court. They voted 5-4 to grant the stay until Utah state authorities could provide more information. Gary wrote an open letter to his mother, which was published in newspapers, asking his mother to please stay out of it and let him die. Ten days later, the stay was overturned. Gary ended his hunger strike, but then he found out he would have to wait another month for his execution, and he tried to kill himself again on December 16th. Michael went to Utah to visit his older brother and try to convince him to fight for his life. But after talking with Gary, he accepted the fact that it was Gary's decision to make. Gary quoted Nietzsche to him, saying, A time comes when a man should rise to meet the occasion. During the last meeting, Gary kissed Michael and said, See you in the darkness. Mm, right. And then they made this into some homoerotic thing in the movie, which it's not... Bessie didn't visit her son, but she was living in Oregon still and crippled by arthritis at the time. Gary's execution was scheduled for January 17, 1977 at 8 a.m. It was supposed to be at dawn, but the judge said no. He wanted it at 8 a.m., and I couldn't find out why. The only mention I saw of it was in The Guardian, and it was like some anti-capital punishment thing about how stupid America is, and they said something about the 77-year-old judge didn't want it at dawn, but that's all they said. So I don't know, maybe he just didn't want to get up early on them. I thought people that age got up wicked early. (laughs) (laughs) Even during the night before the execution, as Gary was having a party at the prison, the courts were arguing the legal questions of his execution. Did I say he was having a party? Yeah. Well, yes. I don't know if this was common, but in the death penalty cases I've done research on, I haven't seen this. Then again, why not give him a party? He's going to die. Gary was allowed to have a bunch of visitors for a party the night before his execution in the visiting room. His aunt and uncle, Vern and Ida, Brenda, his lawyer, Ron Stanger, prison guards were there too. Vern snuck in some nip bottles of whiskey for him. Stanger said the prison had given Gary a bunch of drugs and he wasn't sure what they were. They were pills, but they made him very happy. Hmm. I think they probably did give him stuff because they probably wanted to be... They didn't want any trouble. Right. They don't have to drag, like Jimmy Cagney in that movie, yeah. drag him down the hall, screaming and crying and wetting his pants. Hmm. They ate pizza and played music. Johnny Cash, Gary's favorite singer, called and sang a song over the phone to him. Wow. Gary made an audio tape for Nicole in which he asks her to kill herself again. <laughs> See, I don't think this is standard pre-execution stuff. Lawrence Schiller said that the 24 hours before he was executed, they let him talk on the phone to anybody he wanted. They let him... See, I don't don't think usually they let people do that. I don't know. It's weird. The next morning, it was time for his life to end. I've read several accounts of the execution by people who were there, including Lawrence Schiller, and also the interviews with 
Ron Stanger and Uncle Vern, they were all there and they all talked about it on the documentary on A&E. The A&E biography, it's on YouTube. And you know, a couple of them say serial killer, Gary Gilmore. It's like he's not a fucking... Oh, he only ser- killed two people. A federal judge ordered a stay of execution about one in the morning. And some papers reported that. Gary's mother, Bessie, read one of these accounts. But then when she turned on the news later that morning, she saw that her son had died. At 7.35 a.m. on January 15th, the Tenth Circuit Court lifted the stay of execution, and the execution was to go as planned. Reportedly, Gary laughed and smiled when they told him it was going to happen. The execution chamber was set up in an abandoned cannery building behind the Utah State Prison in Draper. Attending were Uncle Vern. I guess Aunt Ida couldn't make it. Lawrence Schiller and Ron Stanger. Also Bob Moody, who is another attorney, and a bunch of prison officials. About 20 attendants in all. An old mahogany and leather office chair stood on a platform. Behind it were mattresses and sandbags. Opposite was a black sailcloth blind with small openings for the guns. Bright lights shone on the platform. Gary Mark Gilmore's arms and legs and neck were strapped to the chair with nylon straps. He had requested no hood and, and to be able to stand but was told no way. This was one of his, you know, final requests. Right. And the reason they don't want him standing is because they don't want the body. No. Once he's shot, they don't want the body, like, slumping down and and it being, like, obvious. If you're in a chair, your body just kind of stays there. His visitors were allowed to approach him and say goodbye. Gary smiled the whole time. Uncle Vern pretended to arm wrestle, saying, I could pull you right out of that chair if I wanted to. And Gary said, would you? Hmm. Schiller said, I don't know what I'm here for. And Gary joked, you're going to help me escape. Stanger squeezed Gary's hand and gave him a side hug. Stanger said that he, Stanger, was in shock and very emotional. He seemed to really like Gary. Or maybe he just didn't like people getting killed. That's true. Warden Sam Smith, not the singer, but you probably wouldn't know the singer because you're older. He's like a singer now. Okay. (laughs) read the court order. Gary had been trying to look around his blind, leaning in his seat to see if he could see the shooters. He almost tipped over the chair doing this. After the warden finished reading the court order, Gary smiled, looked up at the ceiling and said, let's do it. A Catholic priest, Father Thomas Mearsham, came to give Gary his last rites. When he finished, Gary said, Dominus Rubescum, I hope I pronounced it right. If, If I didn't, sorry, the Lord be with you. And the priest said, it comes spiritu to and with your spirit. Because this was... Gary grew up in the 40s, 50s. Oh, Latin mass. The guard came and put a black corduroy hood over Gilmore's head. I thought he didn't want a hood. He didn't, but they told him no way. Oh, that's right. Guards checked the restraints. They don't want him looking people in the eye when he's getting killed. Yeah. The prison doctor took a circle of black cloth with a white circle painted on it, and pinned it over Gary's heart. The warden gave all the aghasts pieces of cotton to put in their ears. Four almost simultaneous shots rang out, and Gary's body jerked. His right hand rose a little and then fell back down. The doctor came and checked Gary's heart with a stethoscope. He shook his head to indicate Gary was not yet dead. About 20 seconds later, Gary Gilmore expired. The warden and priest joined the doctor and loosened the neck strap to check the bullet that the bullets had gone through his back. A guard said it was time to leave. Afterward, Uncle Vern said Gary had died with dignity. Ron Stanger held back tears as he told of how Gary expressed remorse before he died. Gary Mark Gilmore's case was about more than him. 
After his execution, executions started up again throughout the country, as the critics feared. There seemed to be more than ever, though hangings no longer occur, and people don't like the idea of a firing squad. As I said earlier, I think a firing squad is much more humane than the gas chamber, lethal injection, or the electric chair. It is what it is. You're killing someone. I'm against the death penalty, but why pretty it up? Why jump through all these hoops and make it seem like you aren't really killing someone when you really are? And also, when they're having all these issues with the drugs for... I know. You know, I'd rather not have acid burning through my veins. As for people affected by his crimes, 10 years later, Debbie Bushnell is still traumatized, was still traumatized. I read it 10 years later, but there isn't much in the news about them now, and it's because, you know, they're private citizens, and it happened a long time ago. Her young husband had died with his head in her lap. It is a lonely nightmare, and there's no other way to describe it. I was widowed at 24, but I might as well have been 80. I really went through the ringer. Colleen Jensen Ostergaard, she remarried, became friends with her fellow widow. She said, I didn't find my husband dead, and I'm grateful for that. Both were thankful they were spared the endless appeals that some victims' families have had to go through. Brenda Nickel has lived with a lot of guilt since she was the one who orchestrated Gary's early release. Although he would have gotten out yeah, two years later. Yeah, he would have gotten anyway. out and he, you know. Still, though, she told the LA Times, I really felt guilty about the men Gary had killed. She suffered a nervous collapse the year after his execution. She tried to commit suicide when a bar patron where she worked tried to pay his tab with a belt made from one of the leg straps of Gary's execution chair. Uncle Vern D'Amico says he had recurring dreams about the execution for many years, but was glad Gary took his punishment like a man. No one, and I mean not even James Cagney, could have been any braver, hmm. he said. Nicole- well, in the James Cagney movie that I'm thinking of, he promised whoever, maybe his brother, the priest, I can't remember, that he would act like that on purpose to try to dissuade because kids looked up to him. Oh, I see. Because he was this tough criminal. So he did that on purpose. I think it was white lightning. I can't remember. To look like a pussy so kids wouldn't admire him. Yeah. It didn't work on Vern D'Amico. Nicole still thinks of Gary and what could have been. In a 1997 interview, she seems wistful, which was kind of annoying. Yeah. That nothing ever could have been because he was fucking crazy from the minute she yeah, met him. Before she met him. I don't see these things as black and white. That's uh, Nicole saying? No, that's me. Oh, okay. Nicole, all I said was she was wistful. She, like, kept all his letters and shit. Uh, Gary was a sociopath, and his father probably was too. His mother was just, I don't know, she had obvious issues. I have to wonder, I mean, people said his father was this horrible person, his mother was undemonstrative, but I think in their own way they tried to love him. They tried to be parents, um, but he had a horrible childhood. And yes, his younger brother was not a criminal. He's a writer and a musician. There was some reference to his brother Frank being in a psychological coma, but it was like one like reference, and I didn't pursue it. So his, they all agreed that Frank Sr., everyone that knew about the abuse said that he singled Gary out for abuse. I think if you grow up with negative attention being the only thing you get, that's what you're going to start to seek after a while. Yeah. When he was in prison, that was why he acted out. Yeah. I mean, But I want to give you a fun fact in closing. Okay. Nike's slogan, Just Do It, is based on his last words. Really? Yeah. I've read it in Ripley's Believe It. I've read it several places, but the uh, CEO of Nike or whatever said that he based them on the, his last words. You know, when Gary said, let's do it. 
Why do you look have that blank look? Can I, 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 it's not a blank look. I'm trying to process what you're telling me. First of all, I listened to that business wars thing and trying to remember if they said anything about it. But you're you're basing the slogan for your company on the last words of someone executed killing yes, killing two people. Apparently, yes. Maybe he just liked the, the right. sentiment. Let's do it. Don't wait around. I don't yeah. know. I well, I'm sure Gary Gilmore wasn't the first person who ever said let's, let's do, do it. it. No, what I was going to say about the movie is um. The Executioner's Song. The Executioner's Song with Tommy Lee Jones. I thought Tommy Lee Jones was a very bad choice to play Gary Gilmore. He's a good actor, but he has a very specific look. He's very Gary looking, kind of. And he's intense. He's intense. And Gary, even though, yes, he was a sociopath. Or a psychopath. had his... Angry, either interchangeable kind of. He had his angry outbursts and stuff. He obviously had some appealing qualities because people did love him. And not just Nicole, his cousin Brenda. His uncle Vern, who was not his blood relative, seemed to be very fond of him for some reason. So I don't think he had all bad. I think that he was long past the time where I don't know how he would have ever been able to live a normal life by the time he was in his 30s, the, yeah. the life he had lived. If maybe it if, sounds like by the time he, he was been, a teenager. Yeah, even like before a, then. Yeah. I mean, if they, they should have intervened when he was like eight, maybe, because his, his upbringing was bad. Well, if they had stopped that evil spirit from attaching yeah. itself to him. Yeah. But I think that they had somebody more, more like sensitive looking because Gary Gilmore was not a bad looking guy. A lot of the pictures of him were after his hunger strike. Fairly good looking guy, especially when he was younger. Well, Tommy Lee Jones was good looking. Yeah, but in a different way. Yeah. And he's he, Tommy Lee Jones isn't the type of guy that like that you you if you saw someone that looked like him being kind of intense, you'd be right. scared. But with somebody who's kind of smaller and not as intense looking, it's more. You know, I don't know. It just seems like Tommy Lee Jones, just his own his right. own persona took over. And if you're watching it, it's not a factual thing. It was interesting. But I think if they wanted it to be more like what it really was like. I thought Rosanna Arquette was good, though, because she has the same type. She's the same type of look as Nicole, you know, kind of like wayfish and pretty and all that stuff. So, but the movie was I don't know. I'm not a Norman Mailer fan. I am so definitely not. I did see that movie like years and years and years ago. Yeah, and I remember all that from when it happened. I don't want to say the name of the person because I don't feel like... But he was a, someone that worked with Mom. They were having some kind of party and he brought over a bunch of tabloids that had Gary... I think it was must have been after the execution or around the time. I just remember we had the tabloids because we used them in the wood stove. Right. So I remember looking at them and these lurid colored pictures of him. Like I said, you know... It's I like, just remember it kept getting put off and put off. And then he uh, kept saying he wanted to die. And right. people did argue about whether he had a right to say that. Yeah, we got... Like, and that's why I did the thing for speech class against the death penalty using his case. And I can't remember everything I said now, but... And we don't have to get into a big thing about the death penalty. If you're against it, you know why. If you're for it, you know, you know, I mean, there's... But I agree with you. It, it People should own it. The people who argue, oh, it's not for revenge, blah, blah, blah. All the arguments for it always come back to revenge, retaliation, and eye for an eye and all this. Say that. I'd be against it anyway, but until the justice system in our country is more equitable, yeah. and I'm not just talking about wrongful convictions. It's just arbitrary. It's how arbitrary who gets killed and where. We live in a state where no one's been put to death since, what, like 1838 or something like yeah. that. But you go to Texas and, you know, 
we, you just we, as likely as to get killed anywhere. Right. You know, it doesn't seem to matter. Whatever state you're in, you're just as likely to be a victim. So I don't think right that criminals are like, go, ooh, is this a death penalty state or not? Right, hmm. but there are crimes people are getting put to death to for, and then somebody commits a worse crime and they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally arbitrary. It is arbitrary. We know how racist it is. And just because somebody wants to be put to death, that's not how it works. Yeah, well, they, you know what? He could have he could have committed suicide. Well, he tried. But whatever. So yeah. that was my... No, but that's so I'll try to get out of the 70s Yeah. Okay. next time. I've got some things. Well, I'm going to... Got some things brewing. We're going to roar right into 2018 with my next one. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, you have been doing some topical ones. You did the crazy family. Yeah, that's right. So should we do our recommendations? (laughs) So we're both doing the same thing today. In honor of, although by the time this comes out it won't be anymore, but yesterday was the 50th anniversary. Of when Bobby Kennedy died. Of his death. Another thing I remember, I was seven, and I remember it, and I loved him. But we watched... Also, we watched on Netflix the four-part Bobby Kennedy for President documentary, which yes. is what our recommendations are yes. today. So, number one, the negative Nellies, bad reenactments. There weren't any. No. Were there any reenactments No, there were all? no reenactments. No. So, Thank God. I know. You know, good documentary does not need reenactments. No. No. And this didn't. So, right. that was a, so we didn't take anything off that. So, it was right. a 10. Yeah, still at 10. Narrative cliches? No, none that I noticed. It would have been easy to have some with him. Oh, the doomed son of Camelot. Yes, it would have been. And there really wasn't. The only cliches came from stuff people said, but they can't control that. They were interviewing people. But they didn't tell it in a cliche way. And we'll talk more about the storytelling. But they didn't. You don't have to be melodramatic no. what happened happened racial gender obtuseness not, no, at, not all, at all actually in no. fact the opposite yeah they talk to a lot of people not just the normal right and uh, white guy uh, right of john his. lewis a lot and also people who had real issues with his early yes is, you know with him that weren't fans of yes his. they did yes so no points yeah. out for that. Lack of good visuals. No way it no, had great it was visuals. visuals galore. Lots and lots of archival footage. Yes. And um, great stuff like when he was talking on the phone with yes. one of his people and, and Carrie. Like, do you want to yeah. say hi to Carrie? And yeah, his that kids was are funny. climbing around and, and photographs. Tons yes, of photographs. Tons of I hadn't photos. seen some. I had seen. Yes. But if I could add points. Yes, and one thing that struck me is like when you picture Bobby. Kennedy's face, you picture certain photographs you mm-hmm. see all the time, and they had so much stuff that it changed how yes. you saw Seeing his Seeing him appearance. in motion and animated, because yes. I hadn't really seen much of that. Yeah. Missing pieces. No. There, I would say there were, I think because of the story they were telling, there can always be missing pieces when you're trying to cover, you know, 15 or 20 years of American political history. And you're trying to tell a certain story, but I think for the story they were telling, there, there yeah, I wasn't. I'm not a historian, so I wouldn't know. It seemed pretty thorough. Yeah. The only thing people that might think something is missing is if you're more of a conspiracy theorist and think that stuff was left out. Well, frankly, and we can get to that, the last episode was about, Mm -hmm. and they actually had a lot more than most people. When you read in most accounts, Sirhan Sirhan killed him. Yeah. I mean, they spent a whole hour 
you know, on the fact that maybe he didn't, so. Inaccuracy or anachronism? No. No? None. I mean, it was a pretty good, it was, it showed what the era was like. Thank God they did not have anyone. It wasn't one of those documentaries that I fucking hate where they have people from that era talking about shit, or people our age talking about shit. And people telling the same story over and over. They had people who had really good stories. People who um, were involved. Involved. Every talking head was someone who knew who was from the era. John Lewis, Lewis, Paul Schrade, um, the woman whose name I can't remember who was with, Cesar Chavez. Yes, yes. And... The busboy. Yes. And so every talking head was somebody who was part of that. And era. they even talked to the witness, some of the witnesses. Yes. So I say no. Storytelling was really, really. It was good. really good. In fact, it gave you more than anything. I mean, if you're our age, you you know what happened with JFK. You know what happened with Bobby Kennedy. I mean, I'm a enough a fan of politics. I know how Johnson decided not to run for president, mm-hmm. Eugene McCarthy, all that stuff. But the neat thing was it showed his evolution yes. as a politician is some not so flattering yeah, stuff it did. than what happened when his brother right made him the, the attorney McCarthy general. Stuff and, but yeah. also how the assassination of his yes. brother affected his And it just it, it went into a lot of the what was going on in politics, you know, what was going on around him too. It, it and made why it he it made you understand why it, he it, made the choices he made. It, in fact it gave really good context to it. Yes. And it started out, it reminded me in some ways the story arc of the um, Scorsese documentary about Dylan, No mm-hmm. Direction Home, where it's not, hey, we're showing you this guy's whole life, but we're telling yes. a particular story yes. about how this guy evolved from this thing yes. to this thing. Which, and we're not telling you at the beginning that's what we're doing. No. You're smart. You'll figure it yes. out. And they told it in such a way that you could. I thought it was awesome. It was great. Yeah. Freshness, I thought it was very fresh. Very fresh. For the what a lot of documentaries have evolved into, and yes. with the stupid talking head people that yes. have nothing to do with anything, and, and reenactments. And, and showing the same photos over yeah. and over. So and I, was, I, I was enthralled. One, in fact, one way it was fresh to me, I felt it told Bobby Kennedy's story in a way that you don't hear very often. And yes. it didn't have, you, you watch a documentary like this, which was four episodes, and they were each more than an hour long, yeah, right? I think. But there was nothing I felt was filler or repetitive or fat. Mm-hmm. Like you watch is a lot the, ne- of, the next one is repetition. Right, so. but I was going to, okay, yeah, well, why don't we get to that? Yeah. There wasn't any. Yeah. But they, no. it, went in a chron- it kind of went in a chronological yes. way. They and went, they'd show the same photo once in a while. But yeah. not over and over and over again. But it was it was in context, and also there were different people telling the same story because they had different points of view. So the, in that way, but it wasn't repetitive. But it wasn't the kind of thing where what I hate on a lot of documentaries like the '80s and stuff is where you get like comedians and people they'll show something and then the comedian will say yeah blah 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 and then they tell the story you I just know. showed. and it's like and it's okay like, i already fucking know that and i feel like in a lot of documentaries they just take forever to reel a story out yes. with a lot of repetition and filler and there was none of that here no it just went it was just a chronological right. account of a uh, from the time he well the time john was running for president right. through his bobby's right. death and so beating the drum i would say no, no. and it could have easily it could have easily beaten the drum but instead it told his story and it didn't it did not 
it did not it wasn't hyperbolic or maudlin or anything like that when it could have been right it was a great example of showing yes not telling. and i was by the time we got to his to his assassination i was bawling yeah i really was i was sitting on my couch watching it and i was just crying yes. my eyes out i think if you don't know who much about bobby kennedy or know who he was you should watch it. It's yeah. very, very affecting. It's told in a way... I mean, I find politics interesting anyway. Yes. And I'm not talking about politics like Trump and mm. Clinton sniping at each other. What I'm talking about is how politics work yeah. and why decisions are made and how decisions are made and how people end up in the positions they're in. And it tells it in a way that if you think that stuff is boring, I didn't find this No, boring. I think it's great. I think it's... And uh, we were talking about it when we watched it and I was saying how when when Obama was running how dad said he hadn't seen anyone like that since Bobby Kennedy and I was like yeah and I didn't I I, I took his word for it but I hadn't obviously I hadn't seen it myself because I was only like two and a half when he or almost three when he got shot watching that you got the sense of and it was it was very similar you got the sense what it would have been like if obama right. had been shot he, he moved the, the people yes the way the way that the, and there were people simple. that didn't like him and as it, well and it's funny one thing and i thought about this while i was watching this is he's and i know how tragic jfk's yes assassination was and martin luther king's assassination was but he is one of those people that you see people now, 50 years later, talking about his assassination, and they cry. Yeah. Like John Lewis, like, I was watching yeah. that documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, about Daniel Ellsberg. Mm-hmm. And, it, no, it wasn't in that. It was Daniel Ellsberg, and he was in Hearts and Minds, the documentary oh, yes. about Vietnam. And, and granted, that was made only a few years after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. But he's talking about Bobby Kennedy. He starts bawling. And I've noticed, ever since I watched that documentary, people who knew him or worked with him or were with him still now cry yeah. when they talk about his assassination. And it's because he was... Is so genuine and, and really he was going to make a difference. He evolved in his he thinking. Ev- he went to places and he learned. Yes. He wanted to see for himself. He was from a privileged background. And I'll say something about the Kennedys, even though I don't agree with a lot of stuff about them. Their father was a horrible person. Right. But one thing that I think it was Rose more than their father is still the them. Who people, Rose, people don't know. Yes, the matriarch. I think she instilled, if, because her father was mayor of Boston and stuff, and she came from privilege, about public service. Yes. And they all do. They all seem to have that public right. service. Right, and you may have to them. be, right, and you may have to be from New England or be our age to understand the Kennedys, not as much now as they used to be, but can be very polarizing. Yes. There are people who hate them. But they were then, too. People who love cause... them. And I think as the generations have evolved, that... They're not as polarizing yes. as they used to be, but they do, and the women who don't get much use, like Eunice Kennedy yes. starting the Special Olympics, mm. Ethel Kennedy, Bobby's She wife. still was an activist. Yes. Yeah. And he was really, and, I, and it's not just, oh, he died, so it's easy to say this because mm-hmm. it never had to come true. You can watch this documentary. You can see he wanted things in America to change. He did. And, you know, he 
was a little off about civil rights in the early 60s, he sat down with civil rights leaders and listened to them when they yes. told him how full of shit he yes. was. And he got his brother to change. Yes, and it's largely, in a lot of ways, because of him that the Civil Rights Act that Lyndon Johnson got And you got know, passed, it makes me think passed. about when I was talking about how he evolved and what you just said about how he got JFK to change stuff. Uh, another person who was similar to that is Eleanor Roosevelt because she also evolved yes. and got... Franklin. God, she nagged him relentlessly yeah. to change stuff. She nagged because she's a woman. Well, Bobby didn't nag. He just convinced. But, but I no, can't even remember, even as a little kid, being not necessarily moved, but affected by photos. Like, there's a couple photos where JFK is standing there, like his arms crossed, his silhouette, some of them, listening to his little yes. brother talk to him. Yes. When I, w- I was seven when he was shot. And I don't remember if it was when he was shot or when he died, but I think it was when he, because he died about 24 hours yes, later. Yes, he did. But right. I can remember our kitchen in Ohio, the 70s, yes. yellow and and we had a radio that was in this, It like, was like telephone nook thing. Telephone yeah, it was like nook. those little windows in this, the wall. That, and yeah. that old radio of mom's, yeah. and I can remember hearing it on the radio, and mom being very upset. Mm-hmm. She was pregnant with Nikki at the time. So um, maybe that had... And I also remember hearing Martin Luther King was shot. We were living at Nana's house then. And my picture in my mind was of him, but he was on like one of those Mussolini balconies. I heard he was shot in a balcony. Oh, yeah, and yeah, And because yeah. I was not yet seven, I had in my birthday, what, he was wearing a, like an ermine robe, <laughs> like King's <laughs> oh, wear. He was like a king. And then I remember seeing the photo in the paper, and it was that balcony, yeah. just a hotel balcony, and almost being like little disappointed. <laughs> it seems such a mundane place. But Bobby Kennedy, <laughs> and I was telling you before, too, that I had, as a little kid, that he had gone to Appalachia and places, and there was a photo of him, and they showed this on video yes. there, but he he just kind of, he touched people a lot, and he, like, touched he the back of his hand cheek. to the face of a uh, cheek of a little boy, yes. or a little black boy, and I remember seeing that photo, or one similar to it as a kid, and just you just feel this warmth yes. to him. I and mean, I always just loved him. Yes. But, so I guess we gave that a 10. We gave it a 10. I but, gave it, I, I watched it again if I didn't think I could. And the, and the thing is, too, the, the, the last, the other thing that made me cry, and it was near the end when they talked to the, the busboy. Yes. He goes with the uh, documentarian to see that. Um, no, he went with Paul Schrade. Oh, he the did? The labor leader who was shot. People forget that five other people were shot yeah, with Paul those Schrag. eight bullets. Oh, oh, that's right. It was Paul Schrade. Sorry. Yeah. I was trying to remember who was with him, because I remember him. But there's a mural. He, there's a mural, and he was, where's the mural? I can't remember. Can't but remember, but, but there's all these why? people who were instrumental in Bobby's life, and over his shoulder is the busboy. Yes. And the busboy cried, who's a man now, he's older than us. For those of you who don't know the story, Bobby was shaking his hand, and he, he, he was a teenager at the time, a Mexican immigrant. When Kennedy got shot, the kid held and fell to the floor. The kid held his... Thank you, everybody. And they'll get... Whoa, oh, man. Oh, hi, this is Maureen, and we just had a major technology fail. I'm just editing along, and all of a sudden, boom. I feel bad for you guys because what we were saying there was absolutely brilliant and it would have blown you away and now you're never going to hear it. In any case, I guess we have to say goodbye for this episode. And the best thing is you're not going to have to wait a month or whatever to hear from us again. We're back on track and we'll be back up with the new episode in two weeks. Until then, 
just hang in there and look us up online, on Twitter, on Facebook. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks. Bye-bye. And here's another coincidence. Carol Shorey is the same age the little girl would have been if she had ah, lived. I didn't think of that. Because how, how old is she? No, she was no shit. No, she's fifty-one. She's a okay. Year. Never mind.